Hello, it is Liam Schmidt here from Irish Funds. Today we are bringing you one of the highlights from our recent 9th Annual Irish Funds UK Symposium held in London on November 24th. We are delighted to have Mary-Anne Seagart, Journalist, Editor, Non-Executive Director and Broadcaster to give a keynote address relating to her new book, The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. Mary Ang outlines key takeaways from her study of why women still struggle to be taken seriously in professional life more broadly, as well as including many funds industry specific examples. Commanding extensive academic research and interviews with many pioneering women such as Mary Robinson, Seagar paints a picture of how the social conditioning and unconscious bias is embedded in society from as early as young childhood. Mary Ann closes with practical solutions on how the audience should address and counteract systemic sexism in ways that will benefit us all. I'm sure you'll find her insights very interesting and keep an eye out for further podcasts shortly from the Irish Funds UK Symposium 2022. Hello and thank you very much for coming in. I've got the first slot in the afternoon, which is the one at which you're you know, quite likely to feel a bit sleepy, so I'll try to energise you a little. Now, I'm going to start with a story from a woman probably most of you know very well or know about very well, the former Irish president, Mary McAleese. Now, when I wrote this book, The Authority Gap, which is about how we still take women less seriously than men and what we can do about it, one of the things I did was to interview about 40 incredibly successful, powerful, authoritative women, because my view was that if even they've come across this authority gap, the chances are it applies to the whole of womankind. Oh, yes, she said. And she went on to tell me the story about how when she was president, she led a delegation to the Vatican to meet the Pope. So very, very formal occasion, and there she was at the head of the delegation in the audience room, and in comes the Pope, flanked by his cardinals to be introduced to the president. He walks straight past her, sticks out his hand to her husband instead, and says, wouldn't you prefer to be president of Ireland rather than married to the president of Ireland? Well, the delegation was stunned. I mean, it was such a breach of diplomatic protocol as well as being incredibly rude. And so her husband knew better than to take the Pope's hand. And she grabbed this hand, which was hovering in midair, pulled it back to herself and said, let me introduce myself. I am the President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, elected by the people of Ireland, whether you like it or whether you don't. And afterwards, when she complained, he said, oh, I'm sorry, it was just a joke. I heard you had a sense of humour, right? I bet some women in the audience have heard this before. And she said, I do have a sense of humour, but that wasn't funny because you wouldn't have said it to a male president. And this is a classic example of the authority gap, the way in which we accord less authority and less respect to women than we do to men. Could someone turn the timer on, please, so I don't overrun? Thank you. Now, I bet every woman in this audience has a tale to tell about being at the wrong end of the authority gap. And what this involves is being underestimated, being patronized, uh, being interrupted or talked over in meetings, finding it hard to influence a group, having your expertise unduly challenged, and having your authority or leadership resisted. It happens to all of us. And so women are twice as likely as men to say, 
that they have to provide evidence of their ability. And they're nearly twice as likely as men to say that people are often surprised at their ability. And women of color are twice as likely as white women to say this. And women are nearly twice as likely as men to say that quite often their ideas are not considered in a group until someone else repeats them later, usually a man. So we still have this tendency to assume that a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for women, it's all too often the other way around. And this is what creates the authority gap. And the authority gap is actually the mother of all gender gaps. Because if we're not taking women as seriously as men, then we're going to hire them less readily, we're going to promote them less fast, and we're going to pay them less than men. And it also dents women's confidence, because every time these sorts of things happen to you, it's like a little sort of arrow to the heart. And it also makes women feel less entitled to success. So it really matters. And we see it playing out in all industries, but since I'm here talking at a fund management conference, let me tell you, you are not immune. In fact, quite the opposite, I'm afraid. So there was a recent study done by CityWire called the Alpha Female Report, and it found that only 12% of money globally is run by women, 88% by men. That's one of the biggest gender gaps I've seen in any field. It's, it's twice as big as the gender gap in the Metropolitan Police, for goodness sake. And I'm sure when this research first started, that was seven years ago, people said, oh, it's just a pipeline problem. You know, we don't have enough senior women yet. They'll come up through the pipeline. And in seven years' time, you know, of course, we'll have much more equality. Well, it's seven years later now, and that ratio has improved by only 1.7 percentage points. I don't think that's very impressive. But also, I don't think you should feel it's very impressive or very effective for you because you're basically only hiring from half the talent pool, right? I mean, women are not just as well-educated as men. They're actually better educated than men these days. So they, outperform women, uh, they outperform men all the way through the education system from nursery all the way to PhD. So if you're recruiting graduates, you, know, you might actually do better to recruit female graduates and then actually promote them. Because what this report found is that women are much more slow to be promoted from analyst to fund manager than men are. And yet they're every bit as good. One piece of research I came across when I was writing the authority gap found that 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. That's why men get promoted faster than women. But it's actually not in your business interest, is it? Because this report also found that mixed gender groups running money get the highest returns at the lowest risk. They outperform all male managers. So it's very much in your interest to make fund management more equitable. Now, does the authority gap really exist? I'm sure there are quite a lot of men in this audience, I suspect slightly fewer women, who'll be thinking, really, in 2022? Come on, you know, surely there's not a problem anymore. Let me assure you there is, and I have so much proof. It is resistant to being mansplained away. Um, now, I like to use the analogy of, it's as if men and women are swimming in a river, and men are swimming with the current, and it's quite a strong current, but of course you can't feel it. You just see the banks racing past you, and you think, God, I'm a strong swimmer. And then you see the women struggling to make headway against the current, in the other direction, and you think, well, they're just clearly not as good at swimming as I am. 
And I don't blame you, because it is hard to notice if you're not the victim of this sort of bias. So I often think it helps to flip things around, just as Mary McAleese did when she said you wouldn't have done that to a male president. So to all the men in this room, I ask you just a little sort of flip of imagination. Imagine you're living in a world in which you're routinely underestimated and patronized by the women around you. Imagine living in a world in which when you try to make a point at a meeting, your female colleagues routinely interrupt you and talk over you. Or as soon as you start talking, you notice they start checking their phones surreptitiously for emails. Imagine living in a world in which your expertise is routinely challenged by women. Every time you make a point, they say, oh, are you sure about that? I don't think that's right. Imagine living in a world in which your female bosses keep promoting women above you, even though you think they're not as good as you are. Imagine living in a world in which your female subordinates are, they sort of resist working for you because you're a man and they don't respect you enough. Imagine living in a world in which whenever you're standing with a, with a woman, people automatically come up and address the woman before they address you. Or imagine writing a book and finding that half the population is reluctant to read it because it's written by a man. It's not great, is it? That's what we are up against. Now, I said that I would prove that it exists, and I've got all sorts of proof. In fact, I've got two kinds of proof. And the first one sounds a bit anecdotal, but actually, in a funny way, it's very scientific. So suppose you're a woman, and you're up for promotion against a male rival, and he gets the job and you don't. Terribly hard to prove that bias was at play, because you're two different people, and he may genuinely be better than you. So the way to see whether this really is a phenomenon is to talk to people who've lived as both a man and, and a woman, a woman. Because they're exactly the same person with the same intelligence and ability and personality and experience and body of work. And if they find they're treated completely differently after they transition, when people see them as the opposite gender, to me, that is slam-dunk proof of the existence of the authority gap. Because what you've done is you've controlled for all the other variables and you've isolated the only one that matters, which is gender. So I tell the story in my book of two Stanford University science professors who happened, by coincidence, to transition at the same time in opposite directions. And they used to meet up for lunch and compare notes. Now, Ben Barres, who was a neuroscientist, said once he started living as a man, he said, I've had the thought a million times. I'm just taken more seriously now. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now that people see me as a man. And someone who didn't know his history was overheard at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's, <laughs> i.e. his own, right? Meanwhile, Joan Roughgarden, who is an evolutionary biologist, she transitioned in the opposite direction. And she said that when she was living as a young man, she just felt like she was on this conveyor belt to success. And she kept getting promoted, and her pay kept going up. Once she started living as a woman, all that changed. And she came up against all these instances of the authority gap, people underestimating her, patronizing her, interrupting her, not listening to what she said until a man made exactly the same point 10 minutes later. You know. And she said to start with, I thought, well, if I'm going to live as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against like a woman. And then she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. 
And her conclusion was, men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise, women are assumed to be incompetent until they prove otherwise. And actually, these two anecdotal examples are borne out by much bigger studies of transgender people done by sociologists. Trans men find they're respected a lot more, uh, their pay goes up faster, people listen to them more readily, they can get away with a lot more, and trans women find exactly the opposite. And a lot of them say, because of course they'd lived as men before, they say, I just had no idea of the extent of sexism until I found myself to be the butt of it. Now, there are also lots of academic research studies proving the existence of the authority gap. So, for instance, on interruptions, there's a fascinating one done of proceedings of the US Supreme Court. And this shows that however senior you are as a woman, it doesn't insulate you necessarily against the authority gap. Because they looked at 10,000 hours of transcripts of proceedings, and they found that although women made up only a third of the justices, they suffered two-thirds of all interruptions. In other words, they were four times more likely to be interrupted than their male colleagues, 96% of the time by men. And another study of this phenomenon I've talked about where a woman makes a point at a meeting, no one takes a blind bit of notice, 10 minutes later, a man makes the same point and it's treated like the second coming. And you know, we tend to beat ourselves up and think, oh, well, maybe I wasn't confident enough or I wasn't eloquent enough. No, you were just too female. Okay? And this study proves it. So, they actually got a mixed gender group of people together, men and women, ostensibly to discuss a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this topic because it's actually quite female stereotyped. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned. But they gave a couple of individual members a piece of information that the rest of the group didn't have. And when that information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used by the group in their deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Six times more likely. That's how much harder it is for us to influence a group. And that was men and women in the group. It's not just men who do this. Another study showed exactly the same sort of mixed gender bias. Um, the researchers sent a CV and job application for a lab manager position to American science professors at top universities. And they were identical applications. They just randomly assigned them a male or a female name at the top. And the so-called male candidate was deemed to be significantly more hireable, more competent, was offered a higher starting salary, and the professor said they were more interested in collaborating with him, male and female science professors. So why does this happen? Well, I mean, of course, millennia of patriarchy, of us being told that men are superior to women, even though they're not. Uh, that men are more intelligent than women, even though they're not. You know, every religion in the world has told us that men are better than women. It takes quite a long time to get this out of our system, even in the face of the evidence, doesn't it? But also, you know, we have all grown up in a society in which men are still basically in charge. You know, 91 out of the top 100 FTSE companies are run by men, three times as many men as women in, in the UK cabinet at the moment. Most of us have probably grown up in a family in which our father worked more than our mother, almost certainly earned more than our mother, and maybe had more authority at home than our mother. And so we have these sort of heuristics in our brains that just associate male with authority much more than female. And it's hard to get over that sort of bias. But I think it's also about confidence. 
often women are blamed for this sort of thing. And they're told, well, if you were just more confident, we'd listen to you more, we'd take you more seriously. You should just go on an assertiveness training course or something like that. But actually, it's not women who are the problem. It's how we all perceive and react to and interact with women that's the problem. And that's what I think we need to fix. Otherwise, we'd have solved this problem by now. So on average, men are more confident than women. And that's not surprising because of all the hits to her confidence that a woman will get from being constantly ignored, interrupted, dismissed, talked over, all these things that happen routinely to us and don't happen nearly as much to men. But it's also because of the way we're brought up and socialized. So if you look at boys playing and interacting together, you will find that most of it consists of a sort of boastful competitiveness. You know, I've scored more goals this season than you, or my dad's got a better car than yours. And that's actually how they bond. For girls, and indeed adult women, it's exactly the opposite. So we are socialized to bond through self-deprecation and modesty. And we have to say, oh, I hate my hair, can't do anything with it, I'm useless at maths, my bum's too big. You know, and that's how girls accept each other and bond. So if a girl started behaving like a boy and started being boastful and competitive, she would be ostracized by the other girls. But this also happens in adult life. So actually, if a woman behaves as confidently or as assertively or as self-promotingly as a lot of men do, we recoil. We find it really uncomfortable, and we tend to dislike her for it. And we start to use words about her like, oh, she's quite abrasive, isn't she? Or she's strident or aggressive or scary or bossy, even bitchy, ball-breaking. And none of these adjectives are used of men showing exactly the same character traits. So think of, you know, imagine a tough male CEO. You'll think, oh, you know, he's quite admirable. He's tough. Tough female CEO? Bit of a bitch, I'm guessing. That's what tends to happen. And so it's no good just saying to women, oh, you've just got to be as confident as the men and people will take you more seriously because what will then happen is you're likely to be disliked. And you might say, well, women should just grow a thicker skin. Who cares if they're disliked? Well, actually, it really matters a lot to us because all the studies show that likability is a much more important factor for women than it is for men when it comes to being hired or being promoted, particularly, actually, in this case, if it's men who are doing the hiring or the promoting. So we have to walk this incredibly fine line between being confident enough and therefore being taken seriously but not disliked or not being confident enough and being disrespected. And that's actually a very hard thing for women to do, and it's something that men just don't come across. The other thing, which sort of relates to confidence, is speaking time. Now, if you wire up women and men for the course of the day, you will find that, on average, they're likely to talk about the same amount, about 16,000 words it comes out as. But in every public setting, research finds that men talk more than women. And that's everything from the classroom right up to meetings at work, national parliaments. Men will talk for longer than women. It starts very early in life. So boys are asked to answer questions, are called upon to answer questions seven or eight times more than girls are in classrooms. You know, studies with observers sitting in classrooms have found this. Extraordinary amount, not 7% more, seven times more, 700%. And that's partly because boys are probably more likely to put their hand up before they even know the answer. 
or they're more likely to shout out answers, which girls are encouraged not to do, or maybe on average they tend to be more disruptive, and so a teacher is more likely to call a boy back into the class by asking him to answer a question. But the effect of that is that boys grow up with this sort of male entitlement to disproportionate speaking time, and girls grow up being rewarded for being quiet and well-behaved. And so a lot of men, I'm sure not all the men in this room, but a lot of men indulge in what I call conversational man-spreading, just taking up disproportionate time in a meeting. I can see someone laughing there. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat next to a man at dinner, and I've asked him all sorts of polite questions about what he does and his family and all this sort of thing, and he hasn't asked me a single question, absolutely none. It happened to me the other day, in fact, and I was feeling quite bolshy. And so after about 45 minutes of him talking entirely about himself, and I had dropped the odd hint into the conversation that I shared some interests with him and that sort of thing, but no, didn't pick it up. Uh, so after about 45 minutes, I said, you know, it's been fascinating hearing all about you and your life and your career and your family, but think according to conversational etiquette. This is probably the moment at which you should ask, what do I do? <laughs> ah, he said, what do I do? Well, <laughs> and started banging on about himself again. <laughs> Now, my favorite study of speaking time, because it also makes me laugh, is uh, the participants were given two paintings to look at and a tape recorder, and they were asked to talk for as long as they liked into this tape recorder about the two paintings. And the women talked on average for 3.17 minutes. The men talked on average for 13 minutes, in other words, four times as long. But even this wasn't accurate, because three of the men were still talking when their 30-minute cassette tapes ran out. <laughs> and so what happens as a result is that men speak much more than women at meetings. But if women do talk for the same amount of time as men, we perceive them to have dominated the conversation. So experiments have been done with this. We actually think they've talked too much. And I'm using air quotes because it isn't too much, but that's what we perceive. And we also penalize women who talk too much. So a woman who is thought to talk too much finds that her leadership and her competence ratings plummet, whereas a man who is seen as talking too much sees his leadership and competence ratings rise. So again, we have to tread this incredibly narrow path between not talking enough and therefore not being taken seriously and talking too much and being punished for it and disliked. So what can we do about it? I'm sure you're all thinking. Uh, well, in the last chapter of my book, I counted the other day, I have 140 solutions. Because <laughs> uh, I talk about what we can do as individuals, as partners, as parents, as colleagues, as employers, what teachers can do, what the media can do, what the government can do, because I haven't talked at all about the sort of structural atmosphere around us. Um, but the reason there are so many solutions is that each instance of the authority gap it's very annoying. I mean, it's very annoying if you're interrupted when you're trying to make a point, but it's not exactly career-ending. But they roll up like compound interest over the course of a lifetime to create this big gap between women and men when it comes to opportunity and achievement. And so if it were easy to fix with one solution, we'd have done it by now. But just to pick a few which might be relevant to you, I would say, first of all, it's incredibly important not to mistake confidence for competence because they absolutely aren't the same thing. And men are more likely to overestimate their competence than women are. 
And if they tell you you're brilliant, they're brilliant, you're more likely to believe them, whereas a woman who has been socialized to be self-deprecating, you're also likely to believe. So actually judge them on their output, not on how good they, they tell you they are. Um, look out for this sort of authority gap behavior in meetings and try to do something about it. So if you're chairing a meeting and you find a woman is being interrupted or talked over, say, hang on a minute, I was really interested in what Emily was saying there. Or if a man makes, if she makes a point and then no one takes any notice, 10 minutes later a man makes the same point, you can say, oh, I'm so glad you agreed with what Emily said earlier. Make sure that women get enough speaking time and that men don't monopolize it. And amplify the points they make. So men will amplify other men's points and say, oh yes, that's great, much less likely to amplify women's points. And actually women aren't very good at amplifying other women either. So all of us in this room ought to be doing it. Give them a chance. So promote those analysts to run money. Actually think about it and think, am I giving these women enough of a chance to prove themselves? Am I giving them an equal chance to men? I don't know what your companies are like on parental leave, but if you can offer fathers exactly the same rights as mothers and encourage them to take them up, that makes an enormous difference to leveling the playing field. Um, but most of all, I'd just like to conclude by reiterating the point that this isn't a question of altruism on your part. It's not a question of sort of justice or being kind to women or being fairer, though it would be great if, it, if you were. It's actually in your commercial interest. You're going to make more money for your clients if you have mixed gender teams and if you promote these extremely competent women. So I'm going to stop there and take questions. Uh, okay, are there studies that show how much of this bias is nature versus nurture? Are there matriarchal societies where roles are reversed? Yes, really good question this. So a lot of people say, oh, well, it's just in the genes, or it's in the hormones, or it's because, you know, when we were living in the Stone Age, the men were hunting the mammoths, and the women were just picking berries, and you know, that made men more competitive, say. If that were true, it would be true in all societies at all times all around the world, because it would just be absolutely innate in our genes. It isn't the case. So a very interesting study, actually by some economists, looked at a matriarchal society in India called the Kazi and compared them with a patriarchal society, the Maasai, in Tanzania. And what it found was not only were the, were the Kazi women more competitive than the, than the Kazi men, they were even more competitive than the Maasai men. <laughs> so what that suggests is that it's much more a matter of socialization and how we're brought up and the stereotypes that we apply to people than anything innate in our genes. Uh, what advice do you have for women who feel discouraged by the authority gap? I think the first, the most important thing is to understand that it's nothing personal. And so don't beat yourself up and think, oh, I clearly haven't been trying hard enough, or I wasn't confident enough, or, um, you know, I haven't been working hard enough. No, the chances are it's a systemic problem and not a personal one. And I think, you know, if you have a look at the book, there is so much ammo in there for you. Um, I think that's quite reassuring that it's not personal. And then you can start, I think, you know, fighting within your organization to get these sorts of things taken seriously. And I've got so many solutions in the last chapter for people in HR or indeed managers who are hiring or promoting to try to make it fairer, to make the system fairer, really to recognize merit rather than, say, confidence or bluster. And there was a fascinating study, for instance, they looked at the Hubble Space Telescope 
And of course, all astronomers are dying to have a go on the Hubble Space Telescope. So you have to apply with a project and explain why you're deserving of it. And when people's names were attached to their applications, men were awarded more time on the telescope than women, supposedly entirely on scientific merit. Once they started taking the names off, so they were blind applications, women were awarded more time than men. That's quite salutary, isn't it? What can we do with our children to help this change if it's so embedded in their bonding? There is so much we can do. As you all know, you know, the Jesuits said, give me a child till the age of seven. And, you know, if at naught to seven is probably the most formative years in your children's lives. And so, first of all, I would say the most important thing is for you to have equal authority, if you're in a straight relationship, equal authority at home, because you are role modeling the whole of mankind and womankind to your children when they're small. And if they see their father absolutely respecting their mother equally and vice versa, if they see their parents absolutely sharing the household chores and the childcare, they're going to grow up with a much more egalitarian view of society. And in fact, this is one of the things I found most cheering. I had thought that men were going to have to do this in an altruistic way. No, it's really in their interest too. And so studies show that in these sorts of more egalitarian relationships where they share these things equally, not only are the women happier and healthier, which you would expect, and the children are happier and healthier, and they do better at school, and they have fewer behavioral difficulties, and they get on better with their dads, but the men themselves are also happier and healthier. And so they are twice as likely to say they're satisfied with their lives, and that's a big difference, half as likely to be depressed. They tend to drink less, smoke less, take fewer drugs, get more sleep at night, and here's the absolute clincher, they get more frequent and better sex. So guys, this is very much, <coughs> very much in your interest as well as ours. Uh, <clears throat> you can also try and reduce the gender stereotypes that you impose on your children. So don't automatically praise your girls for being pretty and your boys for being clever or you know, praise your boys for their achievement and girls for their appearance, or they will grow up thinking that you know, <clears throat> men will be judged on their achievements and women just on their appearance. Don't, don't gender stereotype the chores that you expect them to do. I, with, uh, all these women that I interviewed for the book, the, the very sort of powerful ex-presidents and prime ministers and things, I asked them all about their childhood, and almost to a woman, they said, my father really believed in me. And I thought, how fascinating. That was a real common thread. Not my parents, but my father. So any men here who've got daughters, just tell them how much you believe in them, and that will really help them in later life. How important are male allies to solving the authority gap? They are absolutely vital. Please, please, please act as allies to us, because it won't narrow unless and until you do. And we really notice, and we really appreciate it, when a man not only treats us with equal respect and listens to us just as attentively as he does to his male colleagues, but actually you know, actively speaks up on our behalf and you know, says if I'm interrupted at a meeting, oh, hang on, I was really interested in what Marianne was saying there. Or indeed, when you are in a group of only men and we're not even there to defend ourselves, if you hear someone saying something casually sexist or misogynistic, please call them out on our behalf, because we're not there to do it. And even if we did, those sorts of men probably wouldn't be listening to us in the first place. I mean, I think it's rather akin to racism. So, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was quite common 
in a group of entirely white people for someone to make a casually racist joke. And people might feel uncomfortable about it, but they basically got away with it. Doesn't happen anymore, or certainly not in people I mix with. No one would make a casually racist joke anymore. And that's because the racists have basically been marginalized. They may still think it, but they don't say it anymore. And I would like the same thing to happen with sexism. So we've got roughly a third of men who are already brilliant and great allies and really on our side. And we've got about a third of men who are at the other end who are complete dinosaurs. They're not going to read my book. They're not going to listen to this. And they're going to carry on thinking they're superior. But we've got about a third of men in the middle who I think are not actively maligned towards women at all. But they probably don't notice that they tend to monopolize conversations or that they interrupt women more or that they listen to their male colleagues more. And they can change. And once they start changing, then you've got two-thirds of men on the side of the good, as it were, basically on our side. And the third of men who won't change will also feel marginalized, just like the racists. So that would be really helpful. And also, other things you can do if you're senior in your organization is actively to choose to mentor or sponsor a young woman rather than a young man, ideally even a woman of color. Because we have this affinity bias, and we tend, on the whole, to choose people who look and feel like us, someone who reminds us of what we were like when we were young. And if everybody does that, then they're always going to choose a man. Last question, but I've got to do it really quickly. Women are often seen as more emotional than men are penalized for it, whereas men showing emotion is passionate or brave. How can we change this? Well, I can tell you that science shows women are not more emotional than men in the first place. It always makes me laugh when men talk about women being hormonal. I mean, what is male violence but hormonal? It comes from testosterone, doesn't it? We're not more emotional than you. Please don't characterize our reactions to things as being emotional, because there's actually nothing more irritating than that. I'm going to stop there. Thank you.